Voters in Ohio have rejected a change to the state's constitution in what many are calling a victory for abortion rights. It's Wednesday, August 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, police in Montgomery, Alabama have charged three white men for the attack of a black boat captain over the weekend. Also, Pakistan's prime minister wants to dissolve the country's parliament, paving the way for a general election in November. And this hour, how some Afghan refugees fleeing Taliban rule are seeking refuge in the U.S. by making a long and dangerous journey across the Mexican border. When we crossed the border, believe in me, that was the hardest decision for me because for my daughter and for my wife and for my life. In sports, Red Sox lose sunny and mid-80s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Voters in Ohio have rejected a ballot issue that would have made it harder to amend the state constitution in the future. In November, an amendment guaranteeing abortion rights will come up for a vote. Karen Kassler with Ohio Public Radio and Television reports. Issue 1 was losing statewide in early returns and never pulled ahead. It would have required 60% voter approval to amend the Constitution. It also would have required valid signatures from all 88 Ohio counties, which opponents said would make it virtually impossible for grassroots groups to get measures onto the ballot. Voter turnout is likely to be around 30%, which is low for a typical election, but not a summertime special election. A law passed by Republicans last year eliminated most August elections, but the Ohio Supreme Court ruled the law did not apply to legislators putting a constitutional amendment before voters. This means an amendment guaranteeing abortion access in November can pass with just a simple majority. For NPR News, I'm Karen Kassler in Columbus. Government projections indicate the U.S. most likely will set new oil production records this year. NPR's Jeff Brady reports this will happen despite Biden administration efforts to limit greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuels. Energy Information Administration estimates show crude oil production will surpass the current record later this year and, for the first time, will rise above 13 million barrels a day early next year. The agency says there are two reasons for this. Drillers are producing more oil per well, and crude prices are higher, which encourages production. The new record comes as scientists say most fossil fuel reserves will have to remain in the ground to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Oil is the main ingredient in gasoline for cars, and transportation is the largest source of climate-warming greenhouse gases in the U.S. Jeff Brady, NPR News. The Prime Minister of Pakistan is expected to announce the dissolution of the National Assembly, which should set the stage for general elections. There are concerns the election could be delayed, which would cause more political instability in the country. And the person who may be the most popular Pakistani politician is not allowed to run. NPR's Dia Hadid has more. Pakistan's a fragile democracy, and critics say the military still holds sway behind the scenes. And they point to the fate of the man who was arguably Pakistan's most popular leader, the former Prime Minister Imran Khan. On Sunday, he was imprisoned on corruption charges, and yesterday he was disqualified from running for office. And that's a culmination of tensions that have long brewed between Khan and the army. NPR's Dia Hadid. This is NPR News from Washington. 
The World Bank says it will not consider making new loans to Uganda since that country enacted anti-gay laws. Legislation signed into law in May calls for the death penalty for some homosexual acts. A World Bank statement says its goal is to protect sexual and gender minorities from discrimination and exclusion in the projects it finances. Police in South Africa say five people were killed in unrest in Cape Town. Kate Bartlett reports the deaths come amid a strike by taxi drivers that has brought South Africa's tourist hub to a standstill. Among the dead was a British national who'd been shot, police said, adding they'd made over 100 arrests related to the strike violence. The drivers of minibus taxis, most South Africans' main means of transport, complain their vehicles are being impounded by police for minor infractions. The union representing the drivers called for a week-long strike last Thursday. The city authorities have been seeking court action to stop the strike, which has seen schools and clinics closed and people unable to get to work. The city's mayor has accused the country's transport minister of bowing to pressure from the taxis by ordering the release of 6,000 impounded vehicles. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. Fire crews in Hawaii are battling several wildfires. They're being thwarted by a hurricane well off the coast. Strong winds have grounded firefighting helicopters. Wind gusts have also knocked out electricity for thousands of homes and businesses. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBOR in Boston. It's likely too early to know how effective current vaccines will be on the latest COVID-19 variant now surging in the country. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports the EG5 variant is now the dominant variant nationwide. Vamana Madhavan is the clinical director of pediatric infectious disease at Mass General Hospital. She says there's not enough data to know whether this latest variant causes a more severe form of the illness. As more and more parts of the country are seeing an increase in COVID cases, and we'll have to see if that's correlating with more um, admissions, more ICU cases, and, and of course, more deaths. CDC officials say the EG5 variant now makes up about 17 percent of all new COVID cases. Massachusetts lawmakers are calling on the Biden administration to act quickly to address the homeless crisis in the state. Governor Healy yesterday declared a state of emergency over the growing number of families in the state-run shelter system. She said newly arriving migrants are contributing to the increase. In a tweet, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey asked Biden officials to expedite work permits for migrants. He says doing so would give them access to income and housing. A local Muslim American group is condemning racist vandalism targeting a black city council candidate in Everett. A burned plastic head with a vulgar sexist term written on it was left on the campaign sign of Gurleen Alsi. The state chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations called the effigy racist and misogynistic. The group is urging community members to renounce the vandalism. 
The viral ice bucket challenge is making a return to Beacon Hill this morning. The challenge started nine years ago when the family of former Boston College baseball player Pete Frades dumped ice water on their heads to raise money for ALS. The nervous system disease weakens muscles and deteriorates physical function. There is currently no cure. Frades died from the disease in 2019. His mom, Nancy Frades, says the fundraising event is the best way to honor her son's legacy. The worldwide movement Ice Bucket Challenge was in 2014. So here we are in 2023. Um, Pete Frades and Pat Quinn's motto at the time was every August until a cure. Well, we're not there yet. The challenge is open to the public and gets underway at 11. It's 7.08. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. The Red Sox couldn't keep up with the Kansas City Royals in their second game of the series. Final score was 9-3. to The teams will play at Fenway again tonight starting at 7. It'll be sunny today with temperatures in the mid-80s. Tonight, mostly clear skies in mid-60s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a chance of showers in the afternoon. We'll have highs in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. A popular weight loss drug might do one more thing. It could reduce your risk of a heart attack. At least that's what the drug maker claims. NPR's Allison Aubrey took a closer look at the trial results. We'll hear more about that in just a bit. And we start this hour in Montgomery, Alabama, where we now know more about a near riot over the weekend that's been viewed online by millions of people in the last few days. For those who have not seen it, this started at a dockside. Police describe a dispute over which boat should dock where. The videos showed men from a pontoon boat attacking the co-captain of a riverboat. Police have made three arrests. Because the men in the pontoon boat were white and the riverboat captain was black and there's video, this triggered a lot of conversation. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett joins us now from Montgomery. Good morning, Kyle. Hey, Sarah. So a lot of people have seen these videos online, but just tell us about what happened. What do we know about what led up to these moments? Well, the police chief said at a press conference yesterday that the men in the pontoon boat had refused to move their vessel after the captain repeatedly asked them over a loudspeaker to move. At that point, the co-captain, who was black, came to the dock in a smaller boat to ask them to move. And that's when a man from the pontoon boat lunged and hit him, Sarah. And people on the riverboat and nearby started to tape the event, and it sounded like this. Other people from the pontoon boat joined in, overwhelming and beating the co-captain, and that prompted onlookers to jump in and start fighting with each other. So in short order, Sarah, not only were fists being thrown, but people began to hit each other with folding chairs and even to fall in the water. And it mostly broke down along racial lines, but not entirely. And Kyle, you said the fight fell largely along racial lines. Is there any indication that the white men seen beating the black boat captain could face hate crime charges? Well, police say they're facing charges of misdemeanor assault. They consulted with the FBI and the district attorney about charges such as inciting a riot. But the evidence just wasn't there to charge them for that or a hate crime. 
race was just not a determining factor in the charges, according to the police chief. Now, I will say so far, it's only been white men that have been charged. Um, these individuals are 48-year-old Richard Roberts, 23-year-old Alan Todd, and 25-year-old Zachary Shipman. One of them has turned himself in, and as of last night, it wasn't clear about the others. Please say more charges, though, Sarah, could be coming against other individuals. Now, Montgomery, of course, has a very long history, both in the slave trade and the civil rights movement. How is this fight being talked about there in that context? Well, okay, so here are two perspectives. Right after the incident, Stephen Reed, who is the city's first black mayor, called the events intolerable. But he doesn't believe that it's going to have lasting negative effects. You know, no one incident, uh, you know, defines it, the city, uh, or not, in particular, when it's an isolated one like this was. Uh, from our standpoint, we believe that if we're going to be a different city, we have to put that in practice, we have to put that in policy. Now, I did hear a different reaction from Michelle Browder, who is also black and gives tours of civil rights landmarks, including the same riverfront dock where enslaved people were brought in the 19th century. She says this incident speaks to a larger issue she sees in Montgomery and elsewhere where black people are tired of being attacked. Folks I know in the black community, sometimes we just want to see somebody win. You know, we are living in an age now where you can't mistakenly knock on a door for the fear of being shot through the door. We're normalizing violence against black bodies once again. But having said that, she also knows from history that Montgomery has been a place of healing, and she hopes that it can be again going forward. Kyle Gassett with Troy Public Radio in Alabama. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you, Sarah. Now, Montgomery law enforcement may be leaving race out of this incident, but some who were present saw race as a factor, and so do plenty of people who watch those videos. Gene Demby, co-host of NPR's Code Switch podcast, is in our studios this morning. Gene, welcome. Good morning, Steve. What drew people into this incident? So much of the enormous jokey response to these Montgomery videos are kind of just simple catharsis. You know, there's a genre of viral video that's just watching people who pick a fight get their comeuppance after they pick yeah. a fight, right? That's a, a, a genre unto itself. But these videos are in conversation with all the other videos we've seen in recent years in which you find a black person and a white person in conflict over public space, right? There was the video of the two black men in Philadelphia who were sitting at Starbucks. They had the police called on them. Mm -hmm. There was a video of a white woman uh, who called the police on a black girl who was selling water in San Francisco. There was the black bird watcher in Central Park in New York City who had the police called on him. Oh, yeah. And so what's looming over all of those videos is something really dark, right? A kind of broadly felt racial panic about black people that can go really sideways once the police are summoned. But in the Montgomery borough, the stakes are just so much lower. It's just less fraught. So, you know, the apparent instigators of the fight, the white folks who jumped the black dock workers, they have the numbers on their side initially, and then all sorts of people intervene and jump into the fight to help that black dock worker. Um, somebody swims over, presumably from a boat, to help him out. And people are swinging chairs at the instigator. So it's this kind of absurd melee. Um, it's not exactly the way you expect a video like this to go. You're saying that, unlike some of these other incidents, this video went viral because it's a belly laugh. Absolutely. It subverted our expectations in a completely ridiculous way. Um, if you've seen any of the very funny memes that this incident has spawned, they're kind of capturing this catharsis. Um, instead of being helpless, the black guy at the center of this video had an abundance of help. And it's mayhem, but ultimately, like, no one seems to really have gotten hurt too badly. What do you make of it when you hear Montgomery police say, well, we don't see race as a factor here at this time? Yeah, I mean, you can imagine that a burden of proof for the police uh, goes something like, unless someone involved in this fracas said something explicitly about racial animus, um, then this encounter wasn't racially motivated. But we know, 
It's never that neat. People rarely say that's why they're targeting someone that plainly, mm-hmm. which is why, as one example, racially motivated discrimination is so hard to prove in court. But Roy S. Johnson, who's an opinion columnist for the Alabama Media Group, disagreed with the police on that one. Even if the attack wasn't necessarily racially motivated, uh, the optics of it made race clearly a factor in it. And those optics are maybe especially salient in a place like Montgomery, Alabama. Montgomery was a very, very important slave port in the South in the 1800s. It was the first capital of the Confederacy. It was one of the birthplaces of the civil rights movement, famously. And uh, its regional politics are still deeply shaped by white flight from the city proper after the end of legal segregation. As you're talking, I'm even thinking of news from this year, 2023, Mm -hmm. where there was a Supreme Court ruling about the state of Alabama, finding that the state discriminated against black voters in congressional districts that were drawn that have to be redrawn now. So that's all in the air. But you're telling me this is a moment where people in the community came essentially to the rescue of somebody who felt like he was under attack. Right. You could sort of see in the response to this that so much of this is about is a kind of glee over someone getting their comeuppance, right, over a very punishing history, both longer and more recent, uh, in which black people are the victims of sort of racist violence and discrimination. When you say there's been this social media reaction, where has it been? So that's what's so fascinating about this story. This is kind of the, the like a quintessential black Twitter story. Black people, black users were famously over-indexed on Twitter. Uh, The Pew Research Center recently found that there's been this giant exodus of black Twitter users uh, in the last 12 months since Elon Musk took over. Mm -hmm. And there's been a rise of uh, uh, far-right hate speech on the platform. And so one of the things that's been fascinating to watch about the way this story has sort of spread is that it's a much more fragmented and scattered social media landscape for black users. Um... And yet this story still had all of the hallmarks of black Twitter. It became a meme really quickly. Um, It became really jokey really quickly. There was a lot of like sort of celebration. There was a lot of, by the end of the day, there were like already third and fourth level references to another like different parts of the, like the component parts of the story. Um, All this stuff is still happening. And it's like really important to remember that so much of the discourse around race in this country, particularly around police violence, happened because of this over-indexing of black people on Twitter Hmm. because they were sort of, they were doing a lot of signal boosting on Twitter. Um, And it's fascinating to see see uh, that even though black folks are sort of more um, scattered about, there's more of a diaspora across the digital landscape, there's still um, sort of uh, that sort of black Twitter energy is still very much animating a lot of this discourse. NPR's Gene Demby of the Code Switch podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Steve. Always a pleasure to see you. The maker of Wegovi is claiming the weight loss drug can also cut the risk of heart attacks and strokes. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. It's no secret that Wagovi, like its counterpart Ozempic, is in high demand. These drugs are very effective at helping people control appetite and manage weight. Now, Novo Nordisk, the maker of Wagovi, has results from a five-year study that show people with obesity or who are overweight that take the drug have about a 20% reduced risk of having a major cardiac event, such as a heart attack or stroke. Here's physician Stephen Nissen, a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic who was not involved in the study. This is a very promising result, but how promising will depend on other things. The results of the study, which included about 17,000 adults, have not yet been published in a peer-reviewed journal. And Dr. Nissen says key details, such as potential risks, are not included in the company's press release. He says the reduction in heart attacks and strokes seems very significant. We now know that there is a benefit, and that's great, but we don't know what the risks are. And it's always about benefit versus risk with any drug, and we need to see all of that. 
Dr. Nissen is studying a similar drug, Manjaro, in an ongoing clinical trial. Dr. Pamela Brandt of Innova Health System treats patients with obesity and says Wagovi does have some common side effects. People feel full much more quickly, but that can also lead to nausea or an increase in acid reflux or feeling just uncomfortably full. Rare side effects include the risk of pancreatitis and in rodent studies, a risk of thyroid tumors. So doctors screen patients for a family history of a specific kind of thyroid cancer. The findings of the new study come amid a debate about whether Medicare should pay for the blockbuster weight loss drugs. And Dr. Brandt says the new research shows that weight loss for these patients is not about vanity or appearances. It's about preventing disease. The whole goal of treating people to help them achieve weight loss is to make them healthier. So seeing that they actually have a decreased risk of cardiovascular events like heart attacks and strokes. That's what's really important. Brandt says she looks forward to seeing all the details and what could be a landmark study. Alice Norbury, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Afghans are still fleeing Taliban rule two years after the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. We hear the story of one family that made a dangerous journey to the U.S. through Mexico in an attempt to find safety. It's 721. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We'll have a sunny day today with a high near 84. Tonight it stays clear and falls to a low around 66. Tomorrow clouds move in and we'll have a high near 85. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. On a map, South Central Los Angeles and Carson, California are just under a couple of miles apart. For rapper Reason, moving from the former to the latter meant seeing a world he never knew existed. It was my first sighting that Black people can't be middle class. 
Reason is part of the record label Top Dog Entertainment, along with artists such as SZA and formerly Kendrick Lamar. His new album is called Porches. In it, he raps about how that change of address changed his whole worldview. How meaningful it can be for black kids to see themselves represented beyond a narrow view. Yeah, afraid about the poor steps. I ain't read my course yet. I done made some bad choices. I've been feeling boisterous. I've been feeling energetic. Get it from these poor steps. City gonna give me fuel to get on like a fortress. I just heard a gun talk. For me, it just let me know there isn't a ceiling. Like, you can be creative outside of just, which ironically, outside of just a rapper and athlete, which is what I grew up thinking that was the only thing that you can do. And then I live on a street where my neighbor is a life insurance agent, and then another one is an engineer, and then another one is a dentist. So I would still go visit my cousins in South Central, and I would see the difference between our mindsets. And that's not a knock towards them. It's just I can see the difference of where my mind was when I was a kid, moving, my mind changed, and then their mind kind of stay on this similar path. So where do we hear that in, in uh, the album, in Porches? I rap about all of the different experiences Porches gave me, from the negative, but also from the positive. And I felt like it was important to talk about the positives because I feel like all ra- rappers do these days is talk about the hood and how awful it is and how violent it is and whatnot. So I wanted to also talk about like the power and confidence that it gave me. I'm at it again. Great challenge, I'm stacking again. Y'all ain't really about that action to win. But brag a regular little don't speak broke. I'm in beast mode. That's a bit to the that ain't something we do. Get your revote. Raise rats, started telling my women with long wings from the ghetto and I need some new. I've been settling money and feel good. That reminds me of something I heard you say. Like I'm I feel like I'm the only honest rapper left. Yeah. Is that part of yeah. that? That's literally part yeah. of that part of that narrative. I feel like I'm I'm almost like a comedian, not from the you know make you laugh standpoint, but how honest comedians are. Comedy is almost the only true art form left where you can just be brutally honest. Great comedy I've always felt makes it hurts you a little bit. It's, it hurts you. It, you it know hurts what I mean? some like, part of you because there's some part of you that's walked that right. and you and you try to ignore it. Now, so speaking of this honesty, I know that you've gotten in trouble with your own family. Because of for some sure, of the things you said. Sure, so, yeah, like, yeah. what are some of the things that have come up between you and your family because of your work? Yeah, so, what yeah. you put out there? Um, better Days was a song that I wrote about my cousin. I'm just praying for better days. My older cousin been dabbling in cocaine sniffing. Love him to death, but feeling like I can't hang with him. With he was going through some drug addictions, and we had some issues where he, like, stole some of my jewelry, did a few things that I just noticed that I had to separate myself from him at the time until he got better. But what I didn't do and handle it the right way was ask him before I put the song out. And I also didn't think that the song would end up with 40 million strings. I wish I could show my cousin a better way. Yeah. I'm just praying for better days. Just got stabbed and might be headed to heaven gates. I'm just praying for better days. Just got the text, the docs is operating on him. Wish I could say I was shocked to hear the news. Cause he went off to have him a couple bangers on him. And karma like movie trailers, it's always coming soon. Pray for him. Hate how he living, but love him and never change on him. Praying he make it so I can create a way for him. But if he don't, I'll be praying on heaven gates for him. I'm also not a great person at expressing myself to people. So I kind of do it through the music. That was why I got involved in music was for therapy. And so... A lot of times my family doesn't even know what's going on or how I feel about something until I make a song about it. And it's, kind of, <laughs> and it's, and it's like, it comes off as like diss records to my family, but it's really just like 
me expressing myself. So I, I read uh, that you thought that there's one particular song in this album that's going to cause a lot of commotion. Yeah, the song called Gang. Okay. And so actually, let's hear a little bit of that. This is paying back the piper system diapers. You used to be here just like us. You moving to eyes. Look down on regular guys. Look down from pedestals. to spend that narrative every time. Reason I really know you. I swear this ain't jealousy. Nah, reason I really know you. Wait, I thought you knew me as Rob. You was my cousin brother. I love you. Was never at odds. How get into the spot that I'm at ever seven them times? Know that you use my name just for benefits. Hating all in your sentiments. Came DNA ligaments written down in these differences. So who's not going to like this? The TDE fan base, Top Dog Entertainment fan base. The second verse was basically about my expectations coming into the label with the other artists and how I thought that there was going to be this camaraderie that there isn't. Um, I always tell people that when you sign with TDE, when you're from LA, you feel like a kid signing to the Lakers. You get there and you're like, I have zero relationship with SZA. I have zero relationship with Kendrick Lamar. And you start to feel like, well, damn, I'm just kind of like on this island trying to figure it out. So that then that song and that verse came from that experience. So in a way, was it a good thing that it turned out the way it did? I thought I was going to get on this label and take the elevator, but I had to take the <laughs> stairs. But it's like the growth and strength that you get from taking the stairs is valuable yeah. in a way. You know what I mean? But it, it took me a while to see it that way. Like I was very, very like bitter. Let's hear a little winter break. Let's go and slide through. That's a meal waiting for us. Only right we drive through. I can see it in your eyes. Something that changed inside you. We debate for hours and hours just going back and forth. But we forgot something very important also on that porch. It's a story about this kid that comes home from winter break and he gets robbed. When he, he left the hood and went to college and he transformed into a different person. But when he comes back, his friends expect him to be the same person. So he gets his stuff stolen. And they expect him to stand on it and be a man. You know what I mean? Go, you know, grab a gun, get your stuff back. And he faces the pressures of having to do that, but being fearful because he's not that person anymore. We forgot his little brother was sitting there on that porch. So he saw the game banging, the robbery. I love that song because to me that is what porches is, is the epitome of, is sitting on a porch and learning all of these things, good or bad, that end up shaping you for the rest of your life. That's rapper Reason. His new album is called Porches. Reason, thanks a lot. Uh, thank you for having me. Keep me engaged, truck to the plane to the truck, truck to the hotel lobby. Remember when these was only mirages, cutting the verses in the garages. You never hit me to check up on me, only hit me when you need to gossip. Only hit me for what's in the pockets. I feel like I'm never gonna profit. Unless I'm this is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. The Navy has identified the wreckage of one of the largest U.S. ships sunk in a World War II kamikaze attack off the coast of the Philippines. It's 7.30. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is continuing his three-state swing through the western U.S. He was in Arizona yesterday where he designated a new national monument near the Grand Canyon. NPR's Windsor Johnston says the president is expected to promote his economic and environmental agenda today when he speaks in New Mexico. President Biden is expected to use a speech in Albuquerque to tout the provisions of his signature climate change law. 
The White House says Biden will highlight the progress the administration is making when it comes to promoting clean energy and manufacturing. The law includes tax incentives designed to expand investment in wind and solar energy and reduce carbon emissions that contribute to global warming. The president has events scheduled in Utah tomorrow. Strong winds are fanning wildfires in Hawaii. Some people have been forced to leave their homes on Maui and the Big Island. The mayor of Maui County, Richard Bisson, says the winds won't allow firefighters to attack the flames from the air. It's prevented us from having helicopters uh, assist in uh, putting out the fires just because of the dangerous winds. The National Weather Service says Hurricane Dora passing to the south of the islands is contributing to those gusty winds. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Communities across Massachusetts are still cleaning up the mess left behind from yesterday's storms. The National Weather Service confirms two small tornadoes touched down in the state yesterday. They were in Mattapoisett and Barnstable. The one in Mattapoisett was classified as an EF1 tornado, which brought 95-mile-per-hour winds to the town just before noon. The storm downed trees and cut power for around 450 residents. Town Administrator Michael Lorenko says luckily no one was hurt and there was no major damage to homes. The biggest concern for the town is a water treatment facility um, that provides water to Fairhaven, Mattapoisa and Marion uh, is in that area down Pinkham Lane. It did sustain some damage uh, to the roof. Uh, there was a heating element that was ripped off the roof as well. The National Weather Service reports winds from the EF0 tornado in Barnstable topped off at around 80 miles per hour. Federal and state officials are offering financial aid to Massachusetts farmers affected by this summer's torrential rain and flooding. The flooding followed a late frost that ruined part of the state's apple and blueberry crops. As WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, both farmers and public officials are blaming the erratic weather on climate change. Speaking to farmers in western Massachusetts, U.S. Senator Ed Markey said that when people think about climate change in the state, their first thought is sea level rise in Boston. But what people don't focus on are the 22,000 Massachusetts citizens engaged in farming and the impact climate change is having upon them. According to state data, Weather has ruined nearly 3,000 acres of crops in Massachusetts this year and affected more than 100 farms. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Roxbury residents want the city to improve safety and accessibility at a local playground. Residents tell the Boston Herald that Clifford Park's proximity to the area known as Mass and Cass requires extra safeguards against drug use in the park. Neighborhood leaders say the playground needs more than the $7 million currently allocated for park upgrades. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. ALPrime.com. It was a loss for the Red Sox last night at Fenway. They were outscored by the Kansas City Royals 9-3. That leaves the series between the teams tied. They'll face off for Game 3 tonight at 7. We'll have a sunny day today with highs in the mid-80s. Tonight it falls to the mid-60s and skies stay clear. Tomorrow the clouds return and temperatures rise to near 85. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This month marks two years since the Taliban seized control of Kabul in Afghanistan as American military aircraft evacuated Afghans. Tens of thousands made their way to the United States, and some are still coming. Some pass through other countries along the way, even risking their lives as they cross the border from Mexico. NPR's Tom Bowman has the story of one family. Hey, who's this little one? Yes, Yusra. This is my daughter. Yusra? Shafi Amani holds his three-year-old daughter Yusra outside the Casey Clinic in Alexandria, Virginia. She has a tumble of curls, large brown eyes that roll back at times. Her legs are limp, like a rag doll's. She can't walk or speak or chew food. A feeding tube pokes out of her stomach. Amani carries his daughter into their small apartment just down the street, inside a cluster of red brick buildings. Yusra was a healthy toddler when she and her family fled Afghanistan more than a year ago, taking a dirt road overland to Pakistan. That's where things got worse. When we were there, my daughter was, her fever goes up, and we didn't understand at the beginning it's a stroke. After some tests, doctors told me this was a stroke. Amani got some medicine for his daughter, but decided to leave once more, getting a tourist visa for Mexico. I thought Mexico is best place for me. Arriving in Mexico City with his wife and daughter, they learned it wasn't enough for Yasra. Mexico was not safe place for me because it was very difficult. It was difficult because he didn't speak Spanish and there was a lack of medical care during their six-month stay. There was no assistance for my daughter. She needs some treatment, medication, doctors, and these things. He made a drastic choice. The family would be smuggled into the United States. In Mexicali, he found a contact who directed him to a hotel in a secretive woman who would help. $200 for each person. When we crossed the border, believe in me, that was the day, the hardest decision for me because for my daughter and for my wife and for my life. Two men then showed up and took them to a border wall nearly 30 feet tall and fashioned a kind of harness. Amani and his wife Frista just watched. In the wall, they put something like a rope, and after that, they told us, come first, my wife. So they pulled the, your wife first? Yeah, first she, after that, me and my daughter. You hold on yeah, to your daughter? Yeah. They were now inside the United States, just as the sun was setting, standing on a long stretch of deserted road. In front of them was the new river, one of the most polluted in the nation, teeming with industrial and farm runoff. They got ready to cross. We don't know what will happen, how much this water will be, the deep. Suddenly, they could see headlights coming down the road. It was a U.S. Border Patrol, and an officer waved them away from the river. 20 feet 
away. He told me, stand up your hand and do you have anything? I told him no. And we come and we sit uh, in the car. And after that, we went to the immigration camp. Amani never planned to come to the United States, even after the Taliban took over. Because they told us everything is normal, stay in Kabul. He's 33 now and was a building contractor working on Afghan army camps. Amani was afraid the government work would get him in trouble. He joined those who escaped to Pakistan and then went on to Mexico, and there was plenty of company. The Department of Homeland Security says in the past two years, more than 2,500 Afghans have made the trip and crossed into the U.S. But that illegal route means they could be turned away unless they can prove imminent danger or a medical emergency. U.S. immigration officials could quickly see there was a medical emergency with Yusra. When they told us, we are transferring your daughter, believe in me, as a father, and after that I understand they are human, and they will assist us, they will help us. After a month of treatment at a San Diego children's hospital, he decided to head to Northern Virginia, where there's a large Afghan community. They told us we contact with Children National Hospital in D.C. After that, we will give the paper and uh, your documents, and you will go. That's where the family met Dr. Karen Smith, a one-time Army nurse turned pediatrician at Children's. She is a beautiful little girl that is suffering from a metabolic disorder. And with that, she's weak. She's unable to kind of move a lot for herself, unable to eat. Um, but also knowing that, um, I will say there's such great hope if we manage that well. Yeah, what's the prognosis? So if it's managed well and early on, the prognosis can be very good of a very functional, you know, active individual. But she will have delays, um, most like motor she may have in learning. But what's beautiful about, you know, the child's brain, it's still growing and kind of um, making new cells. Smith and others, including nonprofit groups, faith-based groups like Christ Church in Alexandria, have helped the family settle in. She co-signed for his apartment which is financed by donations that run out in October. Friends provided dishes, silverware, a couch. The chaotic evacuation from Kabul airport two years ago, Smith says, hit her hard. She spent more than two decades as an army nurse. Her husband did combat tours in Iraq as a Green Beret. Frustration, it's just frustration, sadness. And again, I think what the army kind of puts into you is, you know, we're one family, we're team. And when you're in a foreign country, that they're supporting you, helping you stay safe. You don't leave your comrade behind. Afghans who arrived some two years ago in the American airlift got three months of government assistance, Medicaid, a work permit. Amani got none of that because he came here illegally. Back in April, he filed an application for asylum, a status that would allow him to work. Right now he has no social security number. So that, plus a work permit, a work permit would be great. Eureka Cooper, Amani's immigration lawyer, says even though he has an expedited process, Amani's still waiting for approval. She says with the backlog in asylum cases with the U.S. Customs and Immigration Service, it's uncertain how long it will take. Amani hopes to be granted asylum and become self-sufficient before too long. He plans to become a mechanic one day. And his wife, she dreams of becoming a doctor. But English classes will come first. Today I'm happy. I'm happy in the United States. Okay.
Amani hands Yusra off to his wife and cuddles their second child, a chubby six-month-old with alert eyes. Her name is Ikra. Ikra means Reed. Reed. Her name is in defiance of a Taliban regime, he says, in its opposition to educating girls. Taliban closed the doors of school and therefore put her name Ikra. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Alexandria, Virginia. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, voters in Ohio have rejected a ballot measure that would have made it more difficult to pass amendments to the state constitution, including one coming up in November that would protect the right to abortion. And in your forecast, a sunny day today in the mid-80s. Tonight it stays clear and falls to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, increasing clouds in mid-80s. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Boston-based Rapid7 Cybersecurity plans to lay off nearly 500 employees. That's 18 percent of its workforce. The company says the cuts are part of a restructuring plan. It's unclear how many workers in the state will be affected. The restaurant tech provider Toast plans to move its headquarters to the seaport. The company broke its lease at its Fenway headquarters earlier this year. Toast says its new headquarters will open early next year. A Nantucket beer garden is ranked among the best in the nation. A USA Today ranking put Cisco Brewers in the number six spot of 10 best beer gardens in the U.S. Year-round entertainment and the selection of beer contributed to the brewery's ranking. Charlotte Beer Garden in Charlotte, North Carolina, earned the top spot. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. The Navy has formally identified the wreckage of one of the largest U.S. ships sunk in a World War II kamikaze attack. That announcement resonates especially for one man in North Carolina, as WUNC's Jay Price reports. After watching a brief video divers took of the wreckage, 101-year-old Joe Cooper said only one word would do. It's a miracle now. On January 4, 1945, Cooper, then 22 years old, was a gunner aboard the USS Amine Bay. About a dozen lookouts were scanning the sky for kamikaze planes, which had become a major threat. Retired Rear Admiral Sam Cox is director of the U.S. Navy's Naval History and Heritage Command. By that time of the war, our anti-aircraft defenses had become so good that if a Japanese aircraft found a U.S. ship, 
its chances of survival were about one out of 10. So the Japanese pilots figured if I'm going to most likely die, I might as well make it count. This one did. The pilot dove straight out of the blinding sun, and the ship's gunners didn't have time to fire even once. The pilot released two bombs an instant before crashing into the ship. One punched through the flight deck and ignited the fully fueled aircraft in the hangar deck. Below that were crew quarters where Cooper, a native of the North Carolina mountains, had just gone to take a shower. And so we just got down there and boom, boom, and I thought two torpedoes hit us. I didn't know our aircraft would go into us. The surviving sailors tried to fight the fire, but the order came quickly to abandon ship. And I had to hurry, so I left my life jacket on the boat. He jumped 65 feet into the sea. A nearby sailor had an extra life jacket with a broken buckle and gave it to Cooper. It took about five hours before rescuers finally pulled him from the water. 95 sailors were killed. A Navy destroyer eventually had to finish off the Amine Bay with a torpedo because of the danger to other ships. Then, in 2021, an Australian company called SeaScan Survey found wreckage it thought likely to be the Amine Bay. SeaScan's lead researcher, Neil Crumbeck, compared it with historical photos. And the, um, the shape of the bow, and you can see the, um, the beams that supported the, uh, the flight deck. And uh, yeah, you can match it up uh, quite easily. Now archaeologists at the Naval History Command have confirmed the identification. Sunken warships in the region are often targeted by scrap metal hunters. Cox says knowing exactly where the Amine Bay is will help the Navy keep an eye on it. These wrecks are war graves. There's no headstones at sea, so the ship is considered by the Navy a fit and final resting place for the sailors who went down with it. After World War II, Cooper came home to Brevard, North Carolina, but couldn't find work. So he joined the Army and fought in some of the worst battles of the Korean War. Cooper, who now lives in a veteran's home not far from Brevard, says it's wonderful the ship has been found, but over the years he's tried to keep his mind off of war. I don't dwell on that stuff. It's just it's a lost memory. I don't even think about it. That's like a bad dream, like ne- never out. He says if he had dwelled on the things he had seen and done, he probably wouldn't have lasted so long and lived to see his old ship finally found. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Black Mountain, North Carolina. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBOR's Morning Edition, President Biden is expected to announce restrictions on some investments in China, citing threats to national security. It's 7.49. The political organization No Labels claims it's trying to unite Americans around a third-party candidate for 2024. The American people are not divided. The leaders of both parties in Washington are divided. But are the group's goals so lofty? Could their efforts instead put Donald Trump back in the White House? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Voters in Ohio have rejected a measure that would make it harder to change the state's constitution in what many are calling a victory for abortion rights. The Prime Minister of Pakistan wants to dissolve the country's parliament and pave a way for a general election in November. Wildfires in Hawaii are forcing evacuations with the destruction there, leaving many people without homes or power. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, dedicated to providing artisanal and sustainably sourced furniture with design consultants to help with your furnishing needs. CircleFurniture.com. Sunny today in the mid-80s. Tonight we'll have mostly clear skies and mid-60s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds in the mid-80s. There's a good chance of rain and thunderstorms Thursday night. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. A judge has sentenced Tony Lanes to 10 years in prison. Lanes is the rapper and producer who shot and injured another artist, Megan Thee Stallion, after a party in Los Angeles three years ago. NPR's Chloe Veltman reports. Los Angeles Superior Court Judge David Hereford spent two days hearing detailed arguments from the prosecutors and the defence before handing down his sentence. Tory Lanes was found guilty back in December of three felonies related to the unregistered possession and negligent use of a semi-automatic firearm. Legal affairs journalist Megan Cuniff shared her impressions in a video outside the courthouse during a break from the proceedings. Hereford is really getting into uh, appellate decisions and that kind of thing. You know, it, it can be a little hard to follow and hard to track. The prosecutors wanted a hefty prison term. In addition to the shooting, they argued Tory Lanes and his fans launched a hate campaign against Megan The Stallion on social media and also in songs like this one by fellow rapper Drake. The lyrics say she lied about getting shot. The prosecutor said all of this negativity re-traumatised the victim. Meanwhile, the defence was pushing for probation instead of prison time, sharing details about the rapper's struggles with alcohol, his childhood trauma and his mental health. Speaking after the sentencing, Tory Lanez's lawyer, Jose Baez, says he planned to file a motion for bail pending appeal. To get a 10-year sentence is extreme. And really just another example of someone being punished for their celebrity status. According to journalist Megan Cuniff, Tory Lane spoke for several minutes in the courtroom. He called Megan the Stallion his friend and said he still cares about her. The plaintiff wasn't in court, but she issued a written statement saying, quote, For once, the defendant must be forced to face the full consequences of his heinous actions and face justice. Being a woman going a up against this male-dominated industry, Megan is really fighting an uphill battle. That's Gabby Bolgarelli from NPR's hip-hop podcast Louder Than a Riot. She's followed this case for months. In an interview for NPR's It's Been a Minute, she noted the paradox at its heart. Hip-hop was born out of a need to speak truth, but in a mm. lot of ways, people who do that are vilified and, and further disenfranchised. Bulgarelli wondered if Megan the Stallion's treatment by men in the industry could put other women off coming forward with cases of abuse. Today's sentencing might now be seen as a note of encouragement. Chloe Veltman, NPR News.
The Women's World Cup quarterfinals begin tomorrow with Spain facing off against the Netherlands. But several heavyweights have already been eliminated. That includes the United States, which failed to make it to the quarterfinals for the first time. Our next guest knows what it takes to win the World Cup. Brandy Chastain does it! And the USA are world champions once again! That, of course, is Brandy Chastain scoring the winning penalty in the 1999 final. She spoke to our co-host, A. Martinez, who asked her what went wrong for the U.S. team this year. I think a lot of things have happened, and it's happened much before this World Cup started, and that's to say that women's soccer has been on the rise for about a decade or so. And the fact that this World Cup is now 32 teams and has given opportunity to so many new countries to be a part of it. And so it wasn't a guarantee that the U.S. women's national team was going to win the World Cup, even though they were ranked number one. What we found out is there's great football everywhere. Is there anything you saw with the team at the World Cup that you thought they could have been doing this better or this should have been done differently? You know, I assert that they would be better if they value the ball a little bit more, if they have a little bit more possessions-oriented style. I think we just were a little too frantic, perhaps not really wanting the ball as much as we should or we need to, and I think that hurt us. Where do you think U.S. women's soccer goes from here? Because i got to be honest, Brandy, it feels like a big reset button (laughs) is going to happen. Yeah, I think that's natural. I think most countries have to go through this. You have great times and nobody's worried about it, but you have a setback with a loss or you don't win a tournament and now all of a sudden it's time to reevaluate. And I believe that's really where we are in this time. But I think we also have to look down deep at how it is that we're training and coaching our kids in the U.S. soccer system. You know, it's very much about winning. If parents and kids don't win championships, they move to the next club when really development is should be the most important thing. You know, we're developing not just people who understand and have the mentality to win, but who have the skills necessary to make decisions under pressure. As coaches, and I'm a youth coach, we need to do better. Everything this team does or doesn't do is hyper-analyzed. Mm, uh, they don't yes. sing the national anthem loud enough. They celebrate too much when they didn't win, but it, you know, advanced to the knockout stage. It's not all just a byproduct of the high bar that they've set for themselves. Listen, everybody has a, a perceived standard for the U.S. women's national team, but nobody's standard is higher than their own. Let's be clear on that. We will always wear the target on our back. You know, we have been brave and courageous from the beginning. We have fought for equal pay. You know, we stand up for maybe those unseen and unheard. And so, yeah, we carry the load. And so you have to take the tough with the easy and that's a part of when you sign up playing with the U.S. Women's National Team. So, Brandy, for the fans of the women's team that were crushed, what is your message for U.S. women's soccer? First and foremost, thank you so very much for your love and your passion, your energy and your time. This is a bump in the road. Uh, my husband, who coaches women's soccer at Santa Clara University, you know, tells his players all the time, it's called growing pains for a reason. You know, we have to fall down, we will stumble, and we need to learn lessons, and that's a part of this. And so we have been growing women's soccer for a long time, and this is our chance to 
take a, a really good look in the mirror and evaluate, are we doing the things we need to do? And we're going to get better. And that's the beauty of this moment. That's former U.S. women's national team player and World Cup champion, Brandy Chastain. Brandy, thanks. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We'll have sunny skies today along with temperatures in the mid-80s. Skies stay clear tonight as it falls to the mid-60s. Tomorrow clouds move back in and it'll be in the mid-80s. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ohio voters have rejected a proposal that would have raised the bar to change the state constitution in what's being seen as a win for supporters of abortion rights. It's Wednesday, August 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, gun control activist David Hogg today launches a new effort to support young Democrats running for office. That's why this project matters, because it's showing young people that, yes, our system is broken, but it's not unfixable. Also, President Biden is expected to announce restrictions on some investments in China. And this hour, Massachusetts farmers have lost thousands of acres to weather events this year. We hear how some are trying to keep going in a changing climate. Just continue to do the same thing when, we you know, we're getting whacked like this. Seems kind of foolish, but it's not easy or obvious. Sunny and in the 80s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. In Montgomery, Alabama, one of three suspects charged with misdemeanors following a riverfront brawl on Saturday that went viral has surrendered to authorities. The others are expected to be in custody soon. The city's mayor is confident the altercation won't affect tourism. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports. Videos of a black co-captain of a riverboat being beaten by and fighting with white passengers from a pontoon boat have been viewed millions of times. Montgomery's first black mayor, Stephen Reed, says he doesn't see long-term negative effects from the attention the incident has received. People can separate, uh, you know, a few bad apples uh, carrying on from an entire community. And so we expect that, but we also know that we have to continue to Uh, do things each and every day for our citizens and our residents here. Tourism is a major revenue generator for the city, which has both civil rights landmarks and museums and monuments built by the Equal Justice Initiative. 
For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama. Voters in Ohio have rejected an effort to make it harder to change the state's constitution. Republicans propose the threshold for an amendment be approved be raised and that proponents meet stricter requirements to place a proposed change on the ballot. The rejection means a referendum on the November ballot to enshrine rights to an abortion in the Ohio Constitution will need a majority of the vote to pass. President Biden visits New Mexico today. Alice Fordham reports he's expected to highlight investments in clean energy. Member station KUNM, Alex Fordham reports. National Climate Advisor Ali Zaidi told reporters aboard Air Force One that in New Mexico, people would get a chance to see a manufacturing renaissance brought about by the administration's actions, including the Inflation Reduction Act. Zaidi mentioned a new plant manufacturing wind towers in the city of Berlin and the Sun Zia Line, a transmission project set to deliver primarily renewable energy from New Mexico to Arizona and California. New Mexico's state government is working toward a statewide renewable energy standard of 50% by 2030. But in the last few years, fossil fuel extraction has ramped up. And last year, it was the second largest crude oil producing state after Texas. For NPR News, I'm Alice Fordham in Albuquerque. A judge in Los Angeles has sentenced rapper Tory Lanez to 10 years in prison for shooting hip-hop star Megan Thee Stallion in the foot during an argument. Attorney Jose Baez says his client is being punished for being a celebrity. I have seen cases of vehicular homicide and other cases where there's death and the person still gets less than 10 years. He says they'll appeal the sentence. Hurricane Dora is passing well off the Hawaiian islands, but its winds have grounded firefighting helicopters. Crews are battling several wildfires. Hundreds of homes have been evacuated. This is NPR News. In Portugal, about a thousand firefighters are battling a wildfire in the southwestern corner of the country that's already burned 20,000 acres. It's one of several fires raising concern, and the Iberian Peninsula is bracing for yet another heat wave. Alison Roberts reports. Winds from the south complicated the task of emergency workers overnight in Odemira and two neighboring municipalities in the interior of the touristy Algarve region. But they also brought much needed humidity and thus hope that the flames may not break through at two points identified as critical on a 31-mile perimeter. Some of the 1,400 people evacuated on Monday have even returned to their homes. Several regions in Portugal's interior and across the border into Spain are on high alert for heat and more wildfires. For NPR News, I'm Alison Roberts in Lisbon. At least 33 people have died in floods in the Chinese capital Beijing after days of heavy rain. Officials say tens of thousands of homes collapsed and many more have been damaged. Much of northern China has been battered by heavy rain for weeks. More than a million people have been displaced. It was 78 years ago today that the United States dropped an atomic bomb on Nagasaki, Japan, three days after dropping the first one on Hiroshima. The mayor of Nagasaki noted today's anniversary with the plea that world powers abolish nuclear weapons, that they increase the risk of nuclear war. Shiro Suzuki expressed concern that the tragedy of his city is being forgotten as time goes by and memories fade. 
I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There are more than 20,000 parents and children in the state-funded family shelter system. That's a record number, and it's been growing rapidly. Yesterday, Governor Maura Healey declared a state of emergency, saying the situation is unsustainable. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, Healey said newly arrived immigrants are driving the increase. The governor called for individual citizens to step up and the federal government to act. She wants more funding and for work permits to be expedited since many parents in shelter are unable to legally find jobs. We are 110 percent behind the governor's decision. Danielle Ferrier runs Heading Home, which provides shelter for more than 300 families. We have hit both capacity on finding new units and on being able to support those new units with staff. And so that is part of the emergency for us as providers on the ground. This state of emergency is different from the one declared for COVID. It does not expand the governor's power. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Some school leaders in Cambridge are pushing to expand algebra education. The local school committee is considering a plan to offer Algebra 1 to all 8th grade students by 2025. School community members tell the Boston Globe they worry the plan will harm students who aren't ready yet for that level of math. The district phased out an accelerated middle school algebra program in 2019. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren wants the IRS to investigate potential abuse of tax-exempt status by nonprofit hospitals. Warren is leading the bipartisan effort. It follows reports that some hospitals are taking advantage of their status in ways that drive up costs or restrict care for patients. Nonprofit hospitals qualify for tax-exempt status by providing charity care and community benefits. Newburyport is expanding its waterfront along the Merrimack River. City leaders plan to break out ground today on a $6 million expansion of Market Landing Park. The project includes an addition to the main lawn, new parking and restrooms, and new pathways. Officials expect it to be complete by next spring. It's 8.08. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. The Red Sox were outscored by the Kansas City Royals at Fenway last night by six runs. The series is now tied. They'll play again tonight at 7. We'll have clear skies and high temperatures in the mid-80s today. Tonight, skies stay clear and it'll be in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with highs in the mid-80s. Showers and thunderstorms are likely Thursday night. It's 74 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. An activist who's been urging young people to vote now wants them to run for office. David Hogg is offering to help finance them, as we'll hear in a moment. First, we hear yesterday's election results from Ohio. A majority in that state voted in favor of their role in a democracy. The state legislature chose the month of August to hold an election on changing the state constitution to make it much harder for voters to change. Republicans made this effort to lock in their preference on abortion rights, but a big majority said no. Ohio Public Radio's Joe Ingalls reports. Opponents of the measure cheered as results came in. 
Dennis Willard, leader of the opposition group One Person, One Vote, said the people's power has been preserved. Tonight is a major victory for democracy in Ohio. The majority still rules in Ohio. Well over half of the state's voters voted no on the measure, which would have required 60% voter approval rather than a simple majority for changes to the Constitution. The controversial issue led to greater-than-expected voter turnout. What we're seeing in these margins is that the entire thing was offensive to voters. Ohio Democratic Party Chair Liz Walters described the proposed amendment as a power grab by the state GOP. We are telling out-of-touch corrupt politicians in the state house that we will not go back and we will not give up our power. For their part, the Republican lawmakers who pushed for this special election blamed their loss on the timing, even though it was their decision. They say they're now turning all of their attention toward defeating the constitutional amendment on abortion this November. Mike Ganadakis, president of Ohio Right to Life, was disappointed with the election result. But he says he has high hopes things will go his way in November, when the amendment to enshrine abortion into the Constitution is on the ballot, along with a possible law to legalize marijuana. They'll come home. Look, when you have weed and you have abortion on the ballot in November, we're going to solidify our conservative base here in Ohio and vote no on both of them this November. That upcoming fight over the abortion amendment is expected to be one of the most expensive campaigns, if not the most expensive, in Ohio's history. For NPR News, I'm Joe Ingalls in Columbus. Youth participation in politics has broken records in recent elections, showing the political power of this growing voter bloc. For every year of Trump's presidency, I think there was a new chapter of a social movement that was born, whether it was the Women's March, March for Our Lives, the environmental movement, or the movement for Black Lives. That's gun control activist and youth organizer David Hogg. He was at the center of one of those movements when he helped found March for Our Lives in the aftermath of a mass shooting at his high school in Parkland, Florida. Now he's making a career shift ahead of the next election. His new group, Leaders We Deserve, launches today, focused on supporting young Democrats running for state and federal office. NPR's Elena Moore is here to talk more about it. Hi, Elena. Hey, good morning. So why is Hogg starting this group? Well, the goal here, Hogg told me, is to turn more, you know, young activists and organizers into politicians. And when we sat down for an interview recently, it was very clear that Hogg's background, you know, as you said, as a gun control activist, really continues to inform his outlook on this new project. What I see this as is a second step for our generation and the people in power that we're not just voting, we're also running. As a generation, we grew up hearing that to survive a school shooting, we had to run, hide and fight. I think as a generation, we need to reinterpret what that means at a broader scale and that we need to run for office. We need to stop hiding from the responsibility that previous generations often did to protect young people and the future of this country and the future of this planet. And we need to fight for a better future where that never happens in a better system. And Sarah, run, hide, fight is like the tactics students learn in active shooter drills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of Gen Z people over the last few months and gun violence in communities really remains a top issue for them. So it was no surprise to hear that it's still a driving force force from Hog. Yeah, and how are leaders we deserve 
expecting to set themselves apart? I mean, obviously, there are other groups doing similar work. How will this be different? Right, right. So the group is planning on supporting about two dozen candidates who are under 35 years old in federal races and under 30 in state races. And a big part of their work will actually be on that state level where, you know, right now, Republicans do hold majorities in a lot of places and have more influence over a lot of issues liberals care a lot about, like guns, access to abortion and LGBTQ rights. But, you know, Hogg still says the group is focusing on these open and safe Democratic seats right now. We want to make sure that as an organization, we're being an additive force to make sure that we're helping win. You know, in some races, it may not be best for somebody who's 21 years old to be running in that seat that's more competitive. But what our plan here is to do is to help elect those young people in those open blue seat primaries where for a very small investment, we can make a major amount of change in terms of the branding of that state Democratic Party, for example, to show a new face, a new generation. And with that, I think it can have an up and down ballot effect of turning out more young people because they see people who understand them. So Elena, it sounds like this is about long-term coalition building, leadership training maybe, That being the case, 2024 is up next. How much of an effect could this have on the next big election? Right. And since, you know, the group is focused on stacking the deck, so to speak, for the eventual future Democratic majorities of America, in terms of actually flipping Republican seats, that's not their primary goal right now. Though Hogg did tell me that the group will help out in these more competitive races during the general election. But, you know, as for where this fits in the larger youth movement, I think it could help with momentum. I mean, you know, a Approximately, you know, Gen Z and millennial voters, voters around under 40 will make up about, you know, a really big portion of the electorate in 2024, nearly half, according to Brookings. That said, at the same time, Hogg is pretty transparent about the hurdles his generation still faces as they continue to navigate a system that they're aging into. I fear that those young people may lose faith in democracy. That's why this project matters, because it's showing young people that Yes, our system is broken, but it's not unfixable. We can work to fix it and make it better as a generation. The work that we're doing will compound over time by showing young people that when you're involved in politics, when you're involved in these movements, you don't just have to work on the outside, you can also get involved on the inside. And it doesn't have to be an either or situation. We need good people on the inside because I've seen the difference that that can make. And you know, As for Hogg, he's 23, which is too young to run for Congress. But, you know, when I asked him about it, he says he hasn't ruled out running one day, but he told me that is a last resort for him. (laughs) A last resort. Well, we will see. We will see. (laughs) NPR's Elena Moore, thank you. Thank you. The Pakistani prime minister is expected to announce the dissolution of the National Assembly. In theory, this is a normal move. Parliamentary democracies dissolve parliament in preparation for new elections, which is supposed to come this fall. But as we're about to hear, nothing is normal about politics in Pakistan right now. On the line with us is NPR's Dia Hadid. She covers Pakistan. Hi, Dia. Hi there. So in theory, elections are usually good news, right? Right. On the face of it, a country that's been ruled by army generals for nearly half of its existence has now seen multiple governments transfer power to each other through the ballot box. But (laughs) Pakistan's a fragile democracy, and critics say the military still holds sway behind the scenes, and they point to the fate of the man who was arguably Pakistan's most popular leader, the former Prime Minister Imran Khan. On Sunday, he was imprisoned on corruption charges, and yesterday he was disqualified from running for office. And that's a culmination of tensions that have long brewed between Khan and the army, the same army 
that's accused of helping him get elected in the first place, but soured on him when he started challenging their authority. So given all of that, how much concern is there, Dia, that these upcoming elections will not be free and fair? Well, certainly that's something that analysts and opposition figures are telling us, um, like a spokesman for Imran Khan, who called his imprisonment and disqualification pre-poll rigging. Still, that spokesman, Zulfi Bukhari, says the party will contest elections. He says they've got a strong chance. You can leave Imran in prison, you can disqualify him, as long as he can get it out to the people that my party is standing in elections, these are the people you have to give the vote to. And him sitting in jail is probably our best election campaign. Our best election campaign. On the other hand, there's been meek protests against Khan's detention and there's been droves of defections since a crackdown sharpened against Khan's party in recent months. So we're not quite sure how much support they'll command. It's worth adding, though, that the government says Khan's imprisonment is simply because he broke the law and elections may well be delayed until March or April. And two ministers say that's to adjust electorates based on new census figures. You know, Dia, it seems that Pakistan is so often in the throes of a political crisis. Is this one different from the others that the country has experienced? Well, this does feel familiar to many. Local newspapers even reported this week that eight former Pakistani prime ministers and two former presidents had a similar fate as Khan after they fell out with the army. Mm. Still, uh, Seema Mahsan, a political analyst I spoke to, says this time feels different because the army is asserting control in increasingly blatant ways. It's cracked down more harshly on perceived opponents. And she says legislation favourable to the army was rushed through parliament before it was dissolved. Those kinds of things which have been legislated for are extremely, extremely, extremely dangerous and and will have far-reaching consequences. And the military is entrenched to a level that I think we haven't seen in a, in a long time outside of martial law. And right now, Pakistan, which let's remember is a nuclear armed country, is grappling with multiple crises, hunger, devastating floods last year, militants wreaking havoc. And analysts say it's unlikely these tough issues can be tackled if elections bring in a government that's seen as having come to power unfairly. NPR's Dia Hadid, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, recent incidents involving 81-year-old Senator Mitch McConnell and 90-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein have some calling for age limits for politicians. It's 820. The political organization No Labels claims it's trying to unite Americans around a third-party candidate for 2024. The American people are not divided. The leaders of both parties in Washington are divided. But are the group's goals so lofty? Could their efforts instead put Donald Trump back in the White House? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
We'll have a sunny day today with a high near 84. Tonight it stays clear and falls to a low around 66. Tomorrow clouds move in and we'll have a high near 85. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with adoptaclassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools in local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have a counterpoint today to the American consensus on China. Democrats and Republicans alike have agreed on a tougher approach to the biggest U.S. rival. In fact, it's common to say that the parties agree on China, even when they agree on nothing else. Just listen to President Biden and Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis. Before I came to office, the story was about how the People's Republic of China was increasing its power and America was failing in the world. Not anymore. We also have to stop selling out this country's future to China. Uh, It is hurting our middle class and it is hurting our national security. Our next guest says that just because the parties agree doesn't mean they are right. Jim Himes of Connecticut is the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. He wrote in a home state paper that he is disturbed by what he has learned about the risk of war. So we called up Himes to ask what's wrong with what he calls the bipartisan orthodoxy on China. Well, let me start with what's right about the orthodoxy. What's right about the orthodoxy is profound concern with lots of things about China. Their theft of our intellectual property, their treatment of the Uyghur minorities, their surveillance of their own people, all of these things that, of course, go back a long time. But we are also jointly concerned about the remarkable turn that President Xi engineered in his country away from a fairly quiet, understated foreign policy to something very, very different and aggressive. We agree that all of that is deeply problematic. What is concerning to me is the orthodoxy that this is an implacable enemy with whom we can't do business and we really should be minimizing our economic attachments and preparing for war. And Americans have become accustomed to war thinking about Iraq or Afghanistan A war with China is a radically different proposition and one that we should be very, very conscious of and careful of. I could imagine someone who supports the bipartisan consensus here listening to you and saying, what do you want me to do differently? For example, they might say, yes, war with China would be very, very bad, but we have to prepare. Um, Yeah, I'm not in any way arguing with the importance of deterrence, because I think deterrence may be the one thing that stops President Xi from ultimately trying to retake Taiwan by force. So deterrence is important. But you asked a very good question. What would I prescribe? Number one, we all need to understand the huge importance of the economic connections between China and the United States. 700 billion plus or minus of cross-border trade. 
if that were to go away, if some of the more aggressive exponents got their way and we quote unquote decoupled, the inflation that would ensue, the losses of jobs that would ensue because so many American products involve Chinese inputs would be pretty catastrophic. Catastrophic second only to the catastrophe, economically speaking, that would happen if we did get into a shooting war in the Taiwan Straits or elsewhere with China. So we need to take a deep breath. Aren't there some Americans who would like to stomp on the Chinese economy at least a little bit? They would like the United States to remain the world economic leader for many reasons, one of them being so the United States can continue to fund the world's most powerful military. Well, that's just a sort of mistake in economics, right? The United States does better when Europe is economically thriving, and it does better when Asia is economically thriving. The idea that we would choose to interact with one and a half billion impoverished Chinese over one and a half billion Chinese who can buy our products is just crazy. Congressman Himes draws a distinction. He opposes what is called decoupling, blocking U.S. trade with China. He does favor cutting exports of technology that China's military could use, what's called de-risking. I want people to know, if they don't, that as the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, you have oversight authority over uh, intelligence agencies, and you get a look at a lot of classified information that other people may not. Do you see things that make you worry more about the possibility of an accidental conflict between these two countries? I do. Um, I see what the Chinese are actually doing with respect to their cyber attacks, their cyber infiltration, if you will, of really critical networks in the West. They're extraordinarily good at that. By the way, we're probably a little bit better, but that at the end of the day doesn't matter because if they can get access to our critical infrastructure, whether it's water systems or fuel transmission systems, electricity systems, that creates a huge vulnerability for us. I sometimes uh, will exercise a little bit of gallows humor when I hear people talk about TikTok and, oh my gosh, the Chinese Communist Party could take the information from TikTok. Well, guess what? If they want to steal the information from Facebook or Instagram or whatever, they're pretty capable. Of course, we're also heading into an American election year, and it's very easy to imagine because it already happens that one party will beat up on the other as being weak on China in one way or another. Do you see risks in that? Of course, in some ways, this is the dynamic that concerns me. And again, I don't, I want to be very careful here not to sound or be perceived as a so called dove. I'm just counseling prudence on this issue because think back to the early 2000s, both parties became very hawkish on Iraq. As you approach an election, the temptation to outdo each other, the two parties, with hawkish, nationalistic, patriotic rhetoric becomes sort of de rigueur for people who aspire to the presidency. This is what you see, of course, um, Ron DeSantis doing right now, coming up with ever more outlandish ways of, in his opinion, hurting the, the Chinese. Um, and so we need to be absolutely cognizant of that temptation in politics, and though we may not be able to change it, at least see it for what it is. Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for the conversation. Coming up Thursday on Morning Edition, temperature records are being shattered around the world. So how does that affect the elderly, people with health issues, people in poverty, in short, the most vulnerable. Listen on your radio or your phone or ask your smart speaker to play NPR.
This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. We hear from Massachusetts farmers with crops devastated by flooding and other disasters this year who are now wondering how to keep going amidst climate change-fueled weather. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. French authorities say at least nine people were killed today when fire swept through a home for adults with disabilities in the east of the country. One fire official says those killed were among a group of people trapped on an upper floor that gave way. Seventeen people got out safely. That fire broke out in a small town near the border with Germany. Pakistan is calling the actions of the Pakistani Taliban un-Islamic and is calling on the head of the Taliban in Afghanistan to do the same. As Abdul Sattar reports from Islamabad, the request follows a string of attacks in Pakistan claimed by those militants. Pakistan sent a senior diplomat to Kabul for a three-day trip to signal that the Afghan interim government should abide by its prior commitment with the international community. A Pakistani official source told NPR on the condition of anonymity. According to the source, Afghan officials told the envoy an internal executive order declaring attacks against Pakistan as forbidden and haram had been issued. The Pakistani official pushed the Afghan side to make the order public. Pakistan has been complaining for more than a year now that Afghan soil is being used for cross-border attacks, an allegation rejected by the Kabul regime. For NPR News, I'm Abdul Sattar in Islamabad. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Prosecutors are opening a criminal investigation into a deadly boat crash off Cape Cod last month. Authorities say a 17-year-old girl from Sherbourne was killed when the boat she was in crashed into a jetty in Dennis. One other teenage passenger was also hospitalized. A public health warning is in place today for the lower portion of the Charles River. Yesterday's heavy rains forced a sewage discharge into the water just upstream from the Boston University Bridge. Cambridge health officials advised the public to avoid water contact until at least tomorrow afternoon. The head of the State Department of Children and Family Services is leaving. Commissioner Linda Spears will join the Washington, D.C. advocacy group Child Welfare League of America as its president in October. The Boston Globe reports Spears previously worked for the organization before taking the top job at DCF in 2015. Upton, West Bridgewater, and Orleans are among more than 200 small districts getting federal money to make school meals more nutritious. The program is a partnership with the nonprofit Action for Healthy Kids. Rob Bisegli is the organization's CEO. The reality is that offering healthy school meals is key to helping our nation's kids get the nutrients they need today and for their growth over the long term. The grants totaled over $30 million. The money will also help the districts improve cafeteria operations. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books. 
Bookseller Josh Cook presents The Art of Libromancy, Essays on Selling Books and Reading Books, August 22nd. More at portersquarebooks.com. The Red Sox were outscored by Kansas City during last night's rematch by six runs. Final score was 9-3. to The teams will face off for Game 3 tonight at 7. We'll have a sunny day today with highs in the mid-80s. Tonight it falls to the mid-60s and skies stay clear. Tomorrow the clouds return and temperatures rise to near 85. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end to end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Two recent incidents in the U.S. Senate called attention to some senators' age. Republican Mitch McConnell froze in mid-sentence during a news conference before a colleague led him away. Democrat Dianne Feinstein hesitated during a committee meeting, and you can hear in this audio an aide instructing her to vote aye. Senator Feinstein. Um, say aye. Pardon me? Aye. Yeah. Uh, to say. I, I would like to support a yes vote on this. All this happens as the president runs for re-election. He'll be 82 next year, and his leading Republican rival will be 78. We've called on S.J. Olshansky, who's a professor of public health at the University of Illinois at Chicago, who studies aging, and he's analyzed the longevity of U.S. presidents all the way back to George Washington. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me. What have you thought about as people have questioned the age of some of our national leaders? Well, we really shouldn't be using age as a as the primary barometer to evaluate individuals for president. Look, it's, if we're going to do that, we might as well use weight uh, uh, as well. No, um, not not a good explain idea. What, explain what you mean by that. Well, look, the 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 I'm not going to sugarcoat aging. There's no question that the older we get, the higher the risk of things going wrong. But there's plenty of people that make it out to older ages perfectly healthy. Uh, in, in mind and body, but certainly in mind and perfectly capable of being president. And it, I don't know how you would actually put some sort of uh, age barometer. Uh, how would you determine what the proper number is? It's just simply age discrimination if you try, try to do something like so that. So if you said, well, uh, you should retire at 65 or no one should be president after the age of 70, if somebody said something like that, you'd say there's there's no reason for that at all. Absolutely not. Um, there, like I said, that you know, some of the some individuals make it out to older ages perfectly healthy. Some are at younger ages and not healthy. So, how many times you've traveled around the sun is probably not the best barometer of uh, whether or not somebody should be uh, president or not. Look, if you're going to use age uh, as as the primary uh, factor, you're never going to vote for somebody over the age of forty. 
You know, right, as we're so talking, no. as we're talking, cable television is on, and there's an anti-Joe Biden ad of some kind that just showed a bunch of, of shots of him stumbling and so forth. So clearly, people have made this part of the conversation. But are you saying there's a difference between someone's biological age and, say, their cognitive age? Yes. Uh, look, this is well known in the world of aging, in the world of aging science, that that uh, chronological age uh, is not a good barometer of biological age. You can get people uh, out to into their 80s and 90s that can operate at levels that are 10, 20, 30 years younger than their chronolo- chronological age. And the reverse is also true. People can be in their 40s and 50s and operate at the level of somebody who's much, much older. We've looked at the medical records of Biden and Trump and discovered that they are, are both exhibiting attributes that are associated with superagers, individuals that make it out very healthy and cognitively intact. Now, that's really interesting because critics of both men will focus on signs of dementia and so forth. You said superagers. What is a superager? Uh, these are individuals that make it out past the age of 80 that are uh, functioning at a cognitive level that is often decades younger uh, than their chronological age. It just tells you that we we age, we grow old, we senesce at different rates. So you cannot look at all people that are over the age of 80, for example, and assume that they're uh, all going to operate the same way. No, it doesn't work that way. There's a lot of variability that exists, and Biden has exhibited plenty of attributes associated with being a super Okay, agent. so we've got to take it case by case and not just by a number. S.J. Olshansky of the University of Illinois, Chicago, thanks so much. Thank you. A former top executive for Rupert Murdoch is in a fight with his former boss where it counts, the bottom line. Preston Patton says the media magnate should not be allowed to hold on to his Fox television station in Philadelphia. NPR's David Falkenflake has that story. Preston Patton was there in the glory days of the 1990s. The FCC. That's the Federal Communications Commission. It oversees broadcast TV. The FCC had spent a couple of million dollars on a study to try to figure out whether there was a way to get a fourth over-the-air free commercial network and concluded that it was not likely. The agency said it would probably be too costly and too hard to assemble enough stations and create enough programs to sustain a network to rival ABC, CBS, and NBC. All of a sudden, along comes Rupert Murdoch. At the time, the company motto was Fortune Favors the Brave. Murdoch created great print and television holdings all over the world. Patton played a central role for Murdoch in launching a fourth network here. He was my hero. The Fox network yielded The Simpsons, 90210, House, and much more. The license for one of Murdoch's stations, Fox 29, is up for renewal this year. The FCC almost never fails to renew such licenses, making any challenge the longest of long shots. Yet, among those opposing it is Murdoch's former chief lobbyist in Washington, D.C. That's Preston Patton. I could see the tremendous damage that, in my opinion, Fox News Channel was doing to the country. I could see it. In the news, I could see it in friends and family who watched Fox News. And I thought, you helped establish Rupert as a force in American television. You, Preston, have a responsibility to do something. Fox News, Fox 29, Fox Corp, and the Murdochs all declined comment through spokespersons. Fox News is a cable channel. Cable news is not regulated by the FCC, and Fox's attorneys say what happens on Fox News has nothing to do with its Philadelphia station. 
As Murdoch's top lobbyist, Patton once would have made such arguments himself. And even after he left the company to lead the ABC television network, he and Murdoch remained in touch and remained fond of each other. During the pandemic, Murdoch warned Patton to wear a mask. And later, Murdoch implored him to get vaccinated. Again, I'd turn on Fox News and I'd hear a very different message. I heard Tucker Carlson asking, are we sure they're not lying to us about the vaccines? So too did Fox hosts amplify then-President Donald Trump's lies of election fraud in 2020. Fox's Janine Pirro invoked the American Revolution as she argued against the certification of Joe Biden's win. As we are all being told to simply shut up and move on, January 6th will tell us whether there are any in Congress willing to battle for the America that those soldiers fought for. On January 5th, 2021, Murdoch relayed Patton's suggestion that Fox's top stars should tell viewers that Biden had won. Fox News' CEO immediately talked Murdoch out of the idea. The next day brought mayhem and violence and an assault on the U.S. Capitol. Fox and Murdoch would not comment on these emails. Under oath during a defamation lawsuit, Murdoch acknowledged he allowed his hosts to promote lies to hold on to ratings. Fox Corp paid nearly $800 million to settle that case. Patton argues that shows Murdoch is not a fit owner of TV stations, not in Philly, nor anywhere else. David Folkenflik, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report has a preview of the Kansas City Fed's Economic Policy Symposium this month, where officials from central banks will discuss structural shifts in the worldwide economy. Mid-80s today under sunny skies. Tonight it stays clear and falls to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, increasing clouds and mid-80s. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. A Florida-based biotech company plans to move its headquarters to Waltham. Eris Global says it wants to be closer to its customers in the Northeast. It also wants to join the biotech hub in the greater Boston area. The company has 1,000 employees. It's unclear how many will relocate. A new report finds that some of the most popular housing markets in Massachusetts are on the ocean. Analysis from the Boston Business Journal finds that Edgartown and Nantucket are among the hottest housing markets in the state. So is Great Barrington in the Berkshires. Those communities had the strongest pricing momentum through June. Some of the lowest-ranked cities include Boston, Cambridge, and Somerville. A popular Mexican food chain could replace landmark music club Great Scott in Alston. Town officials met last night to discuss a Taco Bell cantina moving into the location. That location would be down the street from the other Taco Bell cantina in Brookline. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. C.Y. Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Closes September 4th. ICABoston.org and Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's been a rough year for Massachusetts farmers. A late frost followed by heavy rains and floods have ruined nearly 3,000 acres of crops in the state, affecting more than 100 farms. WBUR's Barbara Moran spoke with farmers who are wondering how to keep going in a rapidly changing climate. So yeah, water flowed all the way through here and it just swept on through That's Meryl Latronica of Just Roots Farm in Greenfield. It's a small farm, like many in Massachusetts. They grow food on about seven acres, and the torrential rains in July hit them hard. That field is one of our wettest. You can see there's three beds of tomatoes that are dead. Our hot peppers will probably just get that first 10 feet, which luckily people are cool with not having hot peppers. Latronica estimates they'll lose close to $100,000 worth of crops. But at least they didn't lose everything. We've had a great garlic harvest before everything got too bad. So that was nice. Just sort of rolled into July pretty confident and hopeful. And yeah, July served up a not the sandwich we were hoping. Yeah. <laughs> it's a familiar story across Massachusetts. Ashley Randall runs the state's Department of Agricultural Resources. So this has been a really difficult year for Massachusetts farmers. She says it started with a February deep freeze that killed most of the peach crop. Then a late May frost ruined a lot of the blueberries. So with the recent flooding that occurred on July 10th, it was kind of the trifecta, unfortunately, for the farming community. David Fisher runs a farm in Conway on the South River. He says the torrential rain in July caused flash flooding. It reminded him of Hurricane Irene in 2011, except then they had a few days warning. In past floods, we've had some idea that weather was coming and the waters were rising. Um, But we came down to the field and already the field was underwater. The overflowing river sent water rushing over their fields and farm equipment and flooded the chicken coop. And chickens were literally getting washed down the river. So, you know, my crew was in there waiting, chest deep in the water, trying to catch the chickens as they came by. Had a team of horses out here plunging into the water, trying to pull the coop to higher ground. So it was, you know, about as like high intensity as you could imagine. They saved most of the chickens, but almost all the crops were lost. The farm started a GoFundMe campaign and might get some of the $20 million the state recently set aside for flood relief. That'll help for this year, Fisher says. But it's hard to know how to plan for the future when the climate disasters keep piling up. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, what is the, the wise thing and what's the foolish thing to do? I don't know. You know, just continue to do the same thing when, you know, we're getting whacked like this. Seems kind of foolish, but it's not easy or obvious um, to know what to do. A lot of farmers are asking themselves the same question. Because as the earth gets warmer, extreme weather is becoming the norm. Bernadette Plackey is the chief meteorologist at the nonprofit Climate Central. She says farmers now have to prepare for unpredictable weather. When we add more heat to our Earth's system, it shakes things up a lot. It's like a pot of boiling water. When you heat it up, things start to boil and change, right? And that's what we're doing to the Earth's climate system. And it plays out in many different ways. It could be severe drought like last summer or downpours and floods like this year, or frost at an unexpected time. What we plant when and where is based on a stable climate that we've had for decades to hundreds of years, and that is changing. So we need to think about what we plant, when, and where. Back at Just Roots Farm in Greenfield, Executive Director Laura Fisher 
looks out across a muddy field and sees hope. The sweet corn is recovering and the pick-your-own raspberries are ripe and ready. And I think farmers especially are uniquely engaged with the climate as it's changing, right? We're outside, we're working with the soil, we're witnessing the weather events. And I think there are ways for agriculture to be integrated into the solution. Being part of the solution to climate change could look like finding ways to use less water and fossil fuels or paying more attention to healthy soil that stores carbon. As the climate changes, local farmers will have to adapt. Right now, New England farms produce only about 12% of the food eaten in the region. But climate change will likely lead to huge disruptions in the global food supply. Farmers say that makes it even more important to figure out how to keep growing food close to home. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll preview a key summit opening in Brazil aimed at ending deforestation and preserving the rainforest. We'll also hear from the former artistic director of the Mariupol Theater in Ukraine, who was held as a prisoner for 10 months. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. Bionova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. A lot of alfalfa is being grown for export by Middle Eastern agricultural companies in the Arizona desert. And that requires a lot of water. It's the equivalent of about what a million people in the state use for water every year. A new investigation reveals who's profiting on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Ohio voters have rejected a proposal to make it harder to change the state's constitution, widely seen as a win for abortion rights. Hurricane Dora is impacting firefighting efforts in Hawaii, where hundreds of homes have already been evacuated. And three men in Alabama face assault charges following a riverfront brawl that went viral over the weekend. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Sunny today in the mid-80s. Tonight we'll have mostly clear skies and mid-60s. Tomorrow a mix of sun and clouds in the mid-80s. There's a good chance of rain and thunderstorms Thursday night. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. The White House is set to further separate the U.S. economy from China's with new limits on investing. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. 
I'm David Brancaccia. The U.S. is planning to ban American private equity and venture capital firms from investing in certain kinds of technology in China. The Biden administration could post an executive order this morning. Marketplace's Samantha Fields reports. The ban is expected to apply to some investments in semiconductors, quantum computing, and artificial intelligence. Companies that make other kinds of investments in tech in China will also be required to report them to the U.S. government. The goal with this order is to prevent China from developing cutting-edge military technology that could threaten U.S. national security. The move is part of a broader government effort to prevent American technology and money from helping China develop advanced weapons it could potentially use against the U.S. in the future. Last year, the Biden administration started restricting exports of advanced semiconductors and chip manufacturing equipment to China. The new rules are not expected to go into effect immediately. Instead, there will likely be a comment period before they're finalized. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. Consumers in the U.S. have over $1 trillion in credit card debt. First time ever, late end to end, that many dollar bills would stretch from the earth past the sun, 97 million miles. But perhaps more relevant, a trillion dollars in American credit debt is a new high, according to the New York Federal Reserve Bank, among the drivers of this inflation and confident 20-somethings. Here's Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes. There are more people with access to credit cards today than there have ever been before. And a lot of them are young. Gen Z has come into its own as a credit-using generation. Paul Siegfried is with the Credit Bureau TransUnion. He says Gen Zers, who range in age from about 18 to 28, are growing their credit card balances at a faster pace than any other generation. And with inflation, people of all ages may be relying on credit more. But young people are more confident they'll be able to pay it back. They believe that their future income will allow them to pay off the money they borrowed today. Still, money borrowed today is more expensive than money borrowed last year. And Heather Aiello of the National Association of Certified Credit Counselors says not all consumers realize that. So the balances are growing not just because they're spending more, but based on the interest that they're paying. Aiello says education's key to helping the next generation use credit cards wisely and points out more states are requiring schools teach classes in personal finance. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Markets Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up slightly a tenth percent. The July inflation report, the Consumer Price Index, is due tomorrow. Yesterday, Italy's conservative government surprised the country by applying a 40 percent one-time windfall tax on Italian bank profits, which have been lending at higher interest rates but not giving customers correspondingly better rates on savings. The bank stocks fell sharply yesterday, but today the Italian government backtracked, capping the windfall tax, and bank stocks in Italy are moving back up. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Bitwarden. Bitwarden helps enterprises and individuals securely manage passwords from websites to app logins. More at bitwarden.com. And by the Glassdoor app, where professionals share advice and talk about work and life anonymously. Conversations are happening within companies and in thousands of communities on the new Glassdoor app. 
Now, it may not be the wildest party of the season with top economists rubbing shoulders with central bankers, but it sure has a sexy theme this year, structural shifts in the global economy. It's the annual symposium at beautiful Jackson Hole, Wyoming, convened by the Kansas City Federal Reserve later this month. And the gathering is attracting more diverse perspectives. The president of the Kansas City Fed, Esther George, played a key role in that story. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer explains. It was August of 2012. Esther George was the new president of the Kansas City Fed and hosting her first Jackson Hole Economic Policy Symposium. She looked out at the audience and saw a sea of mostly white male faces. She vowed to bring more women and people of color to Jackson Hole. Being the hostess and looking out at that audience was probably the visual that I needed. George organized a happy hour for the handful of women there. And there were five of us around the table. We all fit in one table. Diane Swank was one of those five. She's now chief economist at the accounting firm KPMG. Esther George gave us a seat at the table. The happy hours became a tradition. As the women sipped huckleberry margaritas, George would ask them, who's not here who should be? At one point, someone said, hey, what about Lisa Cook and Susan Collins? This was before the two black economists were top Fed officials. Swank says Esther George asked Collins and Cook to moderate high-profile debates at Jackson Hole. Controlling who gets to ask a question and when the questions come to an end. I mean, it's hard to be a moderator, believe me, in a room of economists and central bankers. That moderating dramatically raised the profiles of Collins and Cook, and Esther George invited Cook to sit at her table at dinner, along with Fed Chair Jerome Powell. George says Cook impressed the top brass at the Fed, so... When her name came up, people saying, oh yeah, Lisa Cook, Jackson Hole, I remember her. In 2022, at George's last Jackson Hole Symposium before retiring, almost 30% of the audience was female, and more than 40% of the speakers were women, according to the Kansas City Fed. It doesn't record the race of attendees, but George says she did see more black and brown faces last year. Chris Brummer teaches financial regulation at Georgetown and tracks diversity at the Fed. He says a range of perspectives can result in better questions. There are the kinds of questions that at least force people to think seriously about what are the downsides of any particular policy action. Like if you hike interest rates to cool the economy, raising unemployment in the process, who's losing their jobs? And if you stimulate the economy, are you widening economic inequality? Brummer says diversity helps Fed officials realize they can create winners and losers with their decisions. I'm Nancy Marshall Genzer for Marketplace. Thank you for that, Nancy. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. Mid-80s and sunny today, clear skies and mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, partly cloudy and mid-80s with a chance of showers and thunderstorms in the evening. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston and the BBC is coming up next. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.